to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. This past week has been so jam-packed full of news, it's difficult to know where to begin. So let's begin at the end. Tuesday was the opening bell of the president's impeachment trial in the U.S. Senate. And as it began, the president was in Davos, giving a speech about the successes the United States has had in the last three years. On the day before, Monday, there was a pro-gun rally in Richmond, Virginia, that drew thousands of people from all over the country amid threats of terrible violence. And also on Monday was the birthday of Martin Luther King Jr., who is respected by Republicans, but who is revered, even lionized by liberals, who seem to forget that he was, by choice, a Republican. Then, throughout the week, Iran continued its threats against the world. That's after their attacks on United States troops in Iraq and after the downing of a commercial airliner by two Iranian missiles that killed 176 passengers and crew. And finally, we have the Democrats' never-ending campaign for the presidency that continues to be more boring than anything else and the field of candidates that is as far from diverse as it could possibly be. So let's jump in. Let's start with the totally inappropriate show that was the opening gambit for the impeachment trial. It was the show-and-tell that was put on by Speaker of the House last week when she signed, finally, the two articles of impeachment. So Speaker Pelosi finally allowed the vote in Congress that would send the two impeachment articles over to the Senate for a trial. But Pelosi is not one to let an opportunity to advance herself go by. The signing itself was a pageant. But in spite of her best efforts, her self-promoting drama turned into farce and made Pelosi look silly and ridiculously egocentric. There's a tradition of using multiple pens to sign important legislation and then giving those pens to the people who have helped to implement the bill whatever the bill is. This practice has been used by politicians for decades. So last week, Nancy Pelosi ordered a ceremony in which to sign the articles of impeachment before the cameras, of course. Before her on the table were the articles of impeachment and three silver trays on which were two dozen silver pens, each engraved with her name. It was self-promotion at its worst. Here she was signing two articles of impeachment against the President of the United States. And she said that it was a solemn occasion, which of course it was or should have been. But she was photographed grinning from ear to ear and handing out celebratory pens for the occasion like souvenirs. It was a cheap show that made a mockery of the process and of the office that she represents. I'm sure you already know that she, Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House, is number three in the line of succession to the presidency. What? Yikes, what does this mean? Well, 
It means that should the president actually be removed from office or otherwise be unable to serve, the vice president, Mike Pence, who is number two in line, would assume the presidency. And if, God forbid, something should happen to him that makes him unable to serve, the Oval Office then would become the domain of, yes, the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. My gosh, this is simply too awful to contemplate. And I, for one, am grateful that the chances of this happening in the next 12 months are almost non-existent. But life sometimes plays sick and terrible tricks on us, and nothing is truly impossible. And that is why the games that Pelosi has been playing with the impeachment process have been so dangerous. Playing fast and loose with the Constitution is no joke. The Constitution not only sets the ground rules for the way that our federal government is supposed to function, but it also protects the rights of the American people. So ignoring it is beyond un-American. It puts the entire foundation of our democratic republic at risk. Here is an example of something that happened on January 20th, just this week, something that should concern every American. Democrat Congressman Steny Hoyer gave a speech on the House floor in support of the Articles of Impeachment. And in his speech, he said, quote, The House provided President Trump every opportunity to prove his innocence, unquote. To prove his innocence. But wait a minute. That's not how it works in America. That assumes that the president is guilty and that he must prove himself innocent. Uh-uh, not in America. Here, there is something called the presumption of innocence. Unquote. Under presumption of innocence, the legal burden rests with the prosecution, which must present compelling evidence that the accused is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And if reasonable doubt remains, the accused must be acquitted. The impeachment process was flawed from the beginning. We've already talked about that a lot, and the Democrats did nothing to provide evidence beyond a reasonable doubt of anything that approaches what is required by the Constitution in an impeachment. What is required is called high crimes and misdemeanors. What the Democrats provided, as I said before, were highly biased witnesses who, with only one exception, had no first-hand knowledge of the issues at hand, which was the infamous telephone call between President Trump and Ukraine's President Zelensky. And that one exception was the only one who had even spoken to the president, and he exonerated him. And there's something else. The president was denied due process as guaranteed by the Constitution. He was never given an opportunity to defend himself or to have his lawyers or Republican committee members call witnesses or to face the Democrats' witnesses and cross-examine them. Hoyer's comments assume that it is the president who must prove himself innocent, and that is against every principle that orders our jurisprudence system. Now, you may already know that although our Constitution does not explicitly refer to assumption of innocence, it has been widely held to be protected by the Fifth Amendment, the Sixth Amendment, 
and the 14th Amendment of our Bill of Rights. In 1895, the Supreme Court heard the case of Coffin versus United States. That had to do with a case of bank fraud, but the most important thing about it was that it established the presumption of innocence concept for persons accused of crimes. The court held that, quote, the principle that there is a presumption of innocence in favor of the accused is the undoubted law, and its enforcement lies at the foundation of the administration of our criminal law, unquote. But the Democrats in Congress seem to have forgotten that, or worse, they don't care because they have not proven that a crime of any kind has been committed by the president. They have moved forward with two impeachment articles that include no crimes of any kind, no less impeachable crimes, and they have sent them to the Senate for a trial. And so the farce continues. Pelosi has named the seven impeachment managers who will participate in the Senate impeachment trials. And who were the impeachment managers? Well, of course, House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff from California. Schiff was the driver of the impeachment process in the House. He was the one who held the hearings in secret and refused to allow Republicans to call witnesses or even to enter the secret hearing room if they were not on the committee. He was also the one who curtailed Republican committee members questioning the Democrats' witnesses and on and on. We have talked about this ad nauseum, and it never gets any better. And the next scoundrel to be selected is House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jerry Nadler, who ran the equally egregious hearings for his committee. He was just as biased and unfair as Adam Schiff. These two men ran what can best be called kangaroo courts and represented the worst of the biased and fundamentally unfair and unconstitutional processes that they called fair impeachment hearing. It was more like something you would see in a third world country. And it put us all to shame. In addition to those two, there are five others. House Administration Committee Chairwoman Zoe Lofgren from California, Representative Hakeem Jeffries from New York, Representative Val Demings from Florida, Representative Jason Crow from Colorado, and Representative Sylvia Garcia from Texas. All of these people are hardened leftists with not one unbiased bone in their bodies. Not one of them brings a balanced point of view or an open mind to the impeachment processes, and every one of them is gunning for the destruction of the presidency of Donald Trump. Ironically, they're all insisting on a fair impeachment trial, despite the fact that their own words and actions and their conduct during the House impeachment hearings were anything but fair. The irony is appalling, and the impeachment trial should be thrown out on its face. Sadly, it won't be, so we will have to ride out this continuing farce until it plays out. Some of the wags on the left have called this impeachment process historic. But they are wrong. There is nothing historic about this entire process, unless you would want to call historic the unprecedented disdain, disregard, and contempt for the Constitution and the law that the Democrats have shown since the early days of Donald Trump's presidential campaign. They have perverted the intentions of the Constitution 
and twisted its intent for their own purposes and only in the name of the game, which is power. Power at all cost and regardless of who gets hurt. And plenty of people have already gotten hurt, good people, like Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, whom President Trump named to be White House Security Advisor. His sin, in the twisted minds of the Democrats who went after him, was to call out President Barack Obama for arming ISIS, facilitating its growth throughout Syria and history through his own unwillingness to take them on. In Flynn's book, The Field of Flight, How We Can Win the Global War Against Radical Islam and Its Allies, he wrote, quote, We're in a global war facing an enemy alliance that runs from Pyongyang, North Korea, to Havana, Cuba, to Caracas, Venezuela. Along the way, the alliance picks up radical Muslim countries and organizations such as Iran, Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, and the Islamic State. That's a formidable coalition, and nobody should be shocked to discover that we are losing that war. Unquote. And although Michael Flynn was the director of the Defense Intelligence Agency and the highest-ranking intelligence officer in the United States military, not once did President Obama ask to meet with him. Then, in April 2014, Director of National Intelligence James Clapper forced General Flynn from his position as Director of the Defense Intelligence Agency. What happened next was appalling. It appears that a member of Mueller's investigating team interviewed General Michael Flynn and laid a trap for him that violated an earlier Supreme Court ruling. Deputy Director of the FBI, Andrew McCabe, essentially lied to Flynn about the reasons for an interview that he was going to have with FBI agent Peter Strzok. You remember him at the White House. Flynn was well into the interview when he discovered that he was being interrogated without having been given the opportunity to have his attorney present. In addition, he was talking off the record about security measures and was not told by Strzok that he was the subject of a legal interrogation and that he had the right to legal representation. In the end, Flynn's case has been confused and mishandled from the beginning. But in December 2019, a judge rejected his assertions of entrapment and set his sentencing date for January 28, 2020. So, we will see. Let's face it. President Trump has been facing a Democrat onslaught since he came down the escalator at Trump Tower and announced his candidacy. Theirs was a campaign for impeachment in search of high crimes and misdemeanors. They knew what they wanted before they found any evidence at all. The absolute absurdity of it all was that when they found nothing, no high crimes, no misdemeanors, they made them up. They made them up by ordering and paying for the Steele dossier, which was full of fabrications and lies from beginning to end. They tried to find collusion, but it was the Democrats who colluded and then projected their crimes onto the Republicans. It was former Vice President Joe Biden who was guilty of bribing the Ukraine government, not President Donald Trump. Biden bribed them with a $1 billion loan guarantee in order to protect his son. It was no secret. He bragged about it openly. It was the Democrat Party that was guilty of collusion with foreign agents to frame the newly elected president and to delegitimize his administration. This has been nothing if not an attempted coup d'etat 
and it must be stopped before the entire fabric of our nation's infrastructure is destroyed. My friends, America is going through a time of great and growing strife, when the left and the right are increasingly divided, and the great space between them is growing wider every day along with the animosity and the hatred. It infuriates me that our elected members of Congress are so disdainful of our Constitution and our duly elected president. And it's worse. Our ability to speak to each other with civility is becoming a thing of the past, and it is creating a dangerous environment for us all. The impeachment trial of President Donald Trump has begun. It is a sham and a tragedy for America because it is not based on fact, only on lies and a plot to bring down a duly elected president. Well, it's time for a short break, and I'll be right back with some stories about the proposed Virginia gun laws and the pro-gun rally on Monday. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. Spreading the out loud truth from sea to shine and sea. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. The goal is to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. To unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. We are the vision of the voices. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. What happened in Richmond, Virginia on Monday? You know, when the Democrats took the Virginia State House and the Capitol in Richmond, Virginia, last uh, in the last midterm elections, the newly minted Governor Ralph Norum made some promises. He said, quote, I will introduce strong gun control bills again in January. With the majority now in the House and Senate, meaning the majority all Democrats, they will become law, and because of that, Virginia will be safer. Unquote. Democrats had won control of the state government for the first time in 26 years, and they pledged to pass strong gun control laws that they said would prevent gun violence and improve the, state's, and improve the safety of Virginia's citizens and communities. And Northam kept his promise. And on January 4th, 2019, 
the governor introduced his gun control package to the Virginia legislature. The package included requirements for universal background checks, the establishment of an extreme risk protection order, risk protective order, reinstatement of Virginia's one-handgun-a-month law, which had been enforced for 20 years before it was repealed by a Republican legislature eight years ago. And it would prevent children from accessing and it would prevent children from accessing firearms and require individuals to report lost or so to report lost or stolen firearms to law enforcement. Governor Northam also promised to introduce a prohibition on bump stocks, a prohibition on bump stocks and high capacity magazines. Now is Virginia really at risk or at least is it more at risk than any other place? And will these new laws make any difference? Here are the numbers. Virginia is the 12th most populous state in the country, and it has a population of over 8 million residents. There are roughly 1,000 deaths by guns in Virginia every year. But what is not so widely known is that about two-thirds of these deaths by guns are not homicides, and they're not accidents. They are suicides. In Virginia, at least, the number of homicides has been dropping while the number of suicides has been rising. Of the 1,035 deaths due to guns in Virginia last year, 674 were suicides. And here's another thing. And here's another thing. In studying the number of voters who took part in the 2018 midterm elections, there was a strong surge of Democrat-leading voters. But the overall percentage of eligible voters in Virginia who actually voted was only 53.4%. And that is the largest percentage of voters in midterm elections since before 1986. Apathy among Virginia voters in midterm elections seems to be a serious problem. So where is all this going? Well, Northam, well, Northam kept his promise and introduced his package of serious gun control laws into the state legislature. After the requisite studies of Virginia bleach shooting and new, after a, after the requisite studies, a Virginia beach shooting and a new frenzy generated by fervent gun control activists, the Democrats, the Democrats were planning to introduce bills which, with their majority, they were convinced would pass when regular session of the General Assembly when the regular session of the General Assembly convened on January 8, 2020. The Democrats clearly were ready to come back to work, with guns blazing, so to speak. But don't be misled because outside of the Washington, D.C. area, which is heavily Democrat, and the Capital District around Richmond, which is also heavily Democrat, Virginians are waking up and they are not liking what they see they have done. They allowed Democrats to take control of Richmond and now they are taking over and now the Democrats are taking over their gun rights. So the big deal for Virginians is how to stop these proposed gun laws from being passed, and if passed, what to do next. Well, over the last few months, 
a grass well over the well over the last few months a grassroots movement of virginians began making waves over a period of months and one at a time 100 of virginians 100 of virginia's 140 communities adopted some form of second amendment sanctuary resolutions creating a legal framework creating a legal framework within which they could defend themselves from the from the proposed laws safeguard their guns and honor the protections provided to them by the second amendment richmond the capital of virginia and fairfax county which is just outside washington somehow missed the boat and continued to misunderstand how strong this movement is among the people of Virginia. Now, if you've ever lived in Virginia, and I have twice, you will know that the Commonwealth, known as Old Dominion, is largely rural, although it is home to some very large developed cities as well, including cities like Norfolk, Newport News, Richmond, and Portsmouth. But rural Virginia has a character of its own that is fiercely independent and ruggedly proud and possessive of its guns. Virginia also has an important place in American history. It was one of the original 13 colonies and it played a big role in both the American Revolution and the framing of the founding documents. It was here that Patrick Henry told the Second Virginia Convention, Give me liberty or give me death. And unlike other parts of the country, Virginians still remember their history. So Virginia is living up to its history and standing up to a tyranny of government that directly contradicts and conflicts with the United States Constitution and its Bill of Rights. Virginia Attorney General Mark Herring begged to differ with the sanctuary counties. He said, quote, when the General Assembly passes new gun safety laws, they will be enforced and they will be followed. These Second Amendment sanctuary resolutions have no legal force and they're just part of an effort by the gun lobby to stoke fear, unquote. But this is exactly what the Second Amendment was written to protect us from, a tyrannical government that wants to take away our rights, including our right to protect ourselves, especially from them, and their threats of taking our constitutional rights away from us. So on Monday, January 20th, gun owners from all over the states, and some even from out of state, descended on Richmond for its annual Lobby Day. The elected officials panicked. Governor Northam declared a state of emergency from January 17th to January 21st because, he said, quote, we have received credible intelligence from our law enforcement agencies of threats of violence surrounding the demonstration planned for Monday, January 20th. This includes extremist rhetoric similar to what was seen before major incidents such as Charlottesville in 2017. Unquote. He particularly referred to white nationalist rhetoric and plans by out-of-state militia members to attend. The predominantly Democrat Virginia legislature voted to temporarily ban guns in the state capitol building. So what happened on Monday? Strangely, it didn't make the afternoon or evening news. Was there a repetition of what happened in Charlottesville in 2017? Did the white nationalists show up and make trouble? 
Did groups like Antifa and Black Lives Matter show up to counter-demonstrate? No, not really. In fact, the protest rally was neither violent nor a display of white supremacy. It was instead a peaceful assembly of mostly Virginians to let Virginia's government know that basic rights, including those enumerated in our Constitution, matter to a lot of people. The white supremacists that Northam and his fellow Democrats feared didn't show up. There were thousands of people who did show up, though. They came to Richmond on Monday. 6,000 of them were allowed to come into the Capitol grounds, and the remaining 16,000 or so gathered outside the fence and on the streets and sidewalks surrounding the Capitol grounds. Most of them came to protest the proposed new gun control laws. And in that huge pro-gun crowd, the only ones to show up were the law-abiding, patriotic, Second Amendment-supporting Virginians and their out-of-state supporters who were peaceful and respectful. There was no violence. The rally was, to the sorrow of the media, uneventful, not newsworthy. It didn't bleed, so it didn't lead. I looked for news about Richmond, but most of the stations that I checked weren't carrying any stories at all. Not about Richmond. It didn't bleed, so it didn't lead. Not surprisingly, Governor Northam took credit for, quote, de-escalating the potential violence. He said in a tweet, quote, We are all thankful that today passed without incident. The teams successfully de-escalated what could have been a volatile situation. I will continue to listen to the voices of Virginians, and I will do everything in my power to keep our Commonwealth safe. Unquote. Really? If only that were true. If only he would listen to the voices of Virginians. In fact, he did everything in his power to create an environment where violence was likely. But it didn't happen because, as we have already seen at countless Trump rallies, which invariably draw tens of thousands of people, the folks who support our Constitution and take it seriously are not skinheads or white nationalists or provocateurs. They are patriots who love this country, who love our Constitution, and who believe in our ability and our right to protect ourselves, our families, our communities, and our country. So what happened on Monday wasn't a surprise to any of us. It was what we expected. Americans need to respect each other. And on Monday, we got an example of how it can be done. But most of the time, we don't really do it, do we? The Democrats in Virginia expected another Charlottesville. And they were outspoken and disrespectful, anticipating the worst from their political adversaries, the gun owners of Virginia. But it was the voice of the gun owners of Virginia who came to express their concern for their gun ownership and their support of their Second Amendment rights, peacefully and respectfully. And that, my friends, is exactly the way it should be done. Will this change anything in the broader picture? Probably not. But it should stand as a lesson to Americans about how it can be done and should be done. And maybe, just maybe, it shows us that America is not quite finished, not just yet. The push for socialism, the hateful rhetoric, 
the angry tweets, and the threats of violence. They are not the voice of America. Maybe, just maybe, we learned on Monday that there is still hope for this great nation after all. And the hope lies with the American people, the ones who love their country. What remains to be seen in Virginia is whether anyone in the state house was actually listening and what the legislature is going to do when they take up the gun control bills next week. Will they listen to the voices of the people in a hundred Virginia counties and cities in their commonwealth? And if they don't, what will be the reaction from the patriotic gun owners in Virginia? Now, getting back to politics again, what do you suppose this means with respect to the upcoming elections? Last year, during the midterm elections, Virginia voters came out in larger numbers than ever for midterm election, 53.4%. That's not so much, but it is a record for midterm elections, as I said before, in Virginia. Now, balance that turnout that switched the state government from purple to solid blue. It means that the majority of people who turned out during the midterm were Democrats or voted for Democrats. Was that a teaching moment for the right? Have the people on the right, the people who carried their guns to Richmond on Monday, have they learned that there is a reason for the ballot and that if they do not exercise their right to vote, they risk losing many more rights than that one? It is the right to vote that helps us to ensure the preservation of all our other rights. It is a balance. In the face of tyranny, it is our right to bear arms that protect us. But before it comes to tyranny, it is our right to vote that maintains America as our bastion of freedom, that ensures that we have a government that upholds and preserves our Constitution, so that we do not have to resort to our guns to protect our right to carry them. Now there's one more story about Governor Northam that is no less shocking than his efforts to take away our guns. Do you remember what he proposed regarding the so-called abortion of a newborn child? As a pediatric neurologist, he proposed a solution to the, quote, difficult decision resulting from the birth of an unwanted child. He put it this way, quote, so in this particular example, when the child is in the process of being born, if a mother is in labor, I can tell you exactly what would happen. The infant would be delivered. The infant would be kept comfortable. The infant would be resuscitated if that's what the mother and the family desire, and then a decision would ensue between the physicians and the mother." Unquote. Now, to be fair, he did qualify his statement with this. Quote, it's done in cases where there may be severe deformities or there may be a fetus that is not viable." Unquote. With today's technology, how is it possible that a child would have such a severe anomaly that his life needs to be terminated after birth, but it would be undetected until birth? In other words, the mother and her physicians, or maybe a panel of physicians, would decide whether the baby will live or die. So here's another question, Dr. Northam. What degree of disability does a baby have to have to justify taking his life? A deformity? A missing limb? Blindness? Down syndrome? Children do survive and even thrive, even with serious disabilities. 
My grandson is a Down syndrome child, and his life is worth every bit of effort that it takes my son and daughter-in-law and my grandson's brothers and sisters to raise him. What if someone had terminated his life at birth, and we would not have had the joy of seeing this wonderful child discover his world? If a newborn is able to survive, he or she should be given every opportunity possible. Now, I need to take another very short break, but when I come back, I want to talk about the ridiculous quarreling and bickering that is starting to fragment the Democrat candidates who are still vying to be the one who will compete against Donald Trump in the 2020 elections. It's your news and entertainment network. News blogs, informative podcasts, entertaining videos, or listen to 24-7 Talk Radio on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. We the people, AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Hello, this is Lieutenant Randy Sutton, the host of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. I am a 34-year police veteran. I am also the founder and CEO of an organization that stands behind injured and disabled law enforcement officers. It is called The Wounded Blue. Our website is thewoundedblue.org. We have produced a film. It is an important film. I urge you to watch it. The film details what happens when a police officer or law enforcement officer is shot or stabbed or beaten or disabled, seriously injured in the line of duty. Most people think they are taken care of medically and financially. The reality may be quite different. It is called The Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. The film is available on Amazon, iTunes, and the Microsoft Store. Last week, there was another Democrat debate. Man, this stuff just doesn't go away. And it doesn't get any more interesting either. All the candidates who are able have been visiting Iowa, and the debate was held in Des Moines last week. It was a boring affair. Except for one hilarious moment when Sanders was asked by one of the commentators something like this. Senator Warren has said that in 2018... You told her that a woman couldn't be elected president in 2020. Did you say that? Well, of course, he denied it. He said quite plainly, I never said that. Then the same nitwit asked Warren something like this. How did you feel back in 2018 when Senator Sanders told you that a woman couldn't be elected president? And they were off to the races. Did he or didn't he? He said no. She said yes. He said She said, altogether, as I said, it was a boring affair. The rest of the so-called debate was all pretty boring. Although, when it was all over, it got interesting again. Because Elizabeth Warren went up to Bernie Sanders on the stage and asked him, quote, Did you just call me a liar on national TV? Well, it wasn't that simple. Clearly, the moderator was on her side, and the whole thing, I think 
was staged, and it certainly was as stupid as it gets. These are people who are trying to become President of the United States, and they're being caught up with utter nonsense. They not only have allowed it to happen, they participate in it willingly, without humor, and frankly, without a shred of intelligence. Our nation needs better, much better. And then, do you remember how many times the Democrats complained about how undiverse the Republicans are? A friend of mine, a liberal, yes, I have liberal friends, said to me after the 2014 Democrat convention, quote, just look at that audience, look at the diversity, it's wonderful, and look at the Republicans, they're all white, unquote. Just recently, late-night host Seth Meyers went after conservatives, shamelessly asserting that the Republicans lack diversity. Well, do you remember the last election, the presidential election, when 17 Republicans vied for the presidential nomination? Among the candidates were Dr. Ben Carson, a black man, Bobby Jindal, a first-generation immigrant from India, and Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz, both Hispanics. To be fair, at the height of this year's contest, there were 30 Democrat candidates, including four black candidates, one Asian and one Hispanic. And Tulsi Gabbard is of mixed ethnicity, half Caucasian and half Samoan. But the pack has become a lot smaller, and all the leading candidates, Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, and Pete Buttigieg, are all Caucasian. All of them. And all but Buttigieg are old, meaning they're over 70. So where's the diversity? They're old white guys. They say that 70 is the new 50. But who's counting? You know what? Honestly, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this. The Democrats will sort themselves out very soon, and then, here's my prediction, we will have two old white guys running for president, and diversity be damned. Oh, but by the way, Senators Sanders, Warren, and Klobuchar are now stuck in Washington during the impeachment trial, so they won't be campaigning during most of the time before the Iowa caucus and the New Hampshire primaries. Oh, well. So let's move on and talk about something real and something serious. There's a new strain of coronavirus, and it seems to be potentially deadly. Last week, I told you that it had made its way from Wuhan province in China to Hong Kong, where several people had become infected. And it has brought to a serious standstill much of the massive demonstrations that have been raging throughout Hong Kong since last summer. As of Wednesday of this week, this pneumonia-like virus has killed at least nine people and sickened at least 440 more since it was initially reported in China a month ago. And it is rapidly becoming a global nightmare. The first case has just been confirmed in the United States on Tuesday in Seattle when a man arrived in the United States with the illness after traveling in Wuhan province. He is now in the hospital and doing well, they say. But the virus is spreading to other parts of China. Five cases have already been identified in Beijing. The World Health Organization held an emergency meeting on Wednesday to try to determine whether this new outbreak of the mysterious illness 
represents a global health emergency. People in the city of Wuhan in Hubei province in China have been diagnosed with the virus and have been isolated while they receive treatment, according to the city's municipal health commission. The Chinese are taking this seriously. Officials are fearful that this may lead to a pandemic like the SARS pandemic that began in China and killed nearly 800 people in 2002-2003. The World Health Organization has warned that the new coronavirus may spread to other parts of China and possibly to other countries. So airports around the world have increased screening of travelers from China. Symptoms include fever, coughing, and difficulty breathing. The virus can also cause pneumonia and can be passed from one person to another. Initial investigations have ruled out SARS. And also, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, MERS, has also been ruled out. And so have influenza, bird flu, and adenovirus. Surprisingly, the coronavirus is common in both humans and animals. But this strain seems to be a particularly virulent form of the virus. Cases have been reported in China, of course, Thailand, Japan, Taiwan, and South Korea, as well as the United States. The CDC, which is the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta, has sent at least 100 workers to New York, Los Angeles, and San Francisco airports in order to screen incoming passengers, particularly from China. It will also start screening at Atlanta International Airport and O'Hare International Airport in Chicago. But there's a wrinkle here because the Chinese New Year will take place on January 25th. In China, hundreds of millions of people will be traveling across the country to celebrate the Chinese New Year. And it is expected that approximately 5,000 passengers from Wuhan will also come to the United States and pass through our airports during the coming weeks. The good news is that the virus will not take anyone by surprise. And the medical authorities are doing as much as they can to stay on top of the outbreak so that it doesn't become an epidemic or a pandemic. The CDC says it has developed a new test to identify the virus, and they are working with the National Institute of Health to develop a vaccine. So it's a mixed bag, some bad news, but some good news. And maybe because we're getting prepared, we can miss this bullet this time. Now on Monday, the country observed the birthday of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. When I was a young bride, my husband and I were living in New Jersey. The civil rights movement was at its height and we were both involved in a number of ways. One evening, we heard that Martin Luther King Jr. would be speaking at a local school and we changed our plans so we could go and hear him. The school was jammed, and the auditorium was full to overflowing. There was no room for us, so we, we sat in classrooms that were employed for this purpose. They also were full, and Dr. King's speech was broadcast over the loudspeaker system. Although we never got to see Dr. King, we heard every word. His speech was deeply moving. His passion was clear, and his vision was brilliant. We returned home that evening, 
full of the spirit of his eloquent words, and more important, the deep sense of purpose that he somehow communicated to his audience who sat in rapt attention even though we never got to see him. But the experience is one I still remember so many years later. It has always been a puzzle to me that Democrats have embraced him so warmly and idolized him over the years. Because I lived in Richmond for several years at the beginning of the Civil Rights Movement. I was there when Medgar Evers was murdered and when three young men, James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, and Michael Schwerner, were kidnapped and brutally murdered. I was also there when Martin Luther King Jr. gave his speech, I Have a Dream, to 250,000 people who gathered in front of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. It was my dream, too. I remember Jim Crow, how disgusting it was, the signs in restaurants that said, we reserve the right to refuse service to anyone, which meant that only white people could eat there. And I remember the signs in the laundry room that said, colored in uniforms only which meant that the only black people who could use the laundromats were maids in uniform, but they couldn't wash their own clothes there, only the clothes of the people they worked for, white people. And all the signs, all the prohibitions, all the segregated schools and the segregated buses, all of it was the work of Democrats. It was the Democrats who started the Ku Klux Klan, who organized lynchings and murders, who kept schools and stores and restaurants and churches and even restrooms and water fountains segregated. They maintained the poll taxes on black voters who were prevented from casting their ballots in every way possible. It was the Democrats who fought to prevent the passage of every single civil rights law right up to the end of the Civil War and right through the civil rights laws of the 1950s and the 1960s. During the civil rights era, Dr. King fought the Democrats who blocked black children from entering schools, turned fire hoses and vicious dogs on black demonstrators. It was Republican President Dwight Eisenhower who pushed the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1957 and who sent the National Guard to Arkansas to enforce school desegregation. And it's important to remember this because, as I frequently say on this program, it is important to remember history so that we do not repeat it. So it should not come as a surprise to you, and you probably already know this, that Dr. Martin Luther King was a Republican. It makes sense if you know our history and the history of that era, because while the Democrats did everything they could to keep blacks segregated and separate, it was the Republicans under Republican President Abraham Lincoln who amended the Constitution to give freedom to the nation's blacks in the 13th Amendment, citizenship in the 14th Amendment, and the right to vote in the 15th Amendment. It was Republicans who passed the civil rights laws of the 1860s, and it was Republicans who also started the NAACP. Martin Luther King was a man for our time. He was the right man in the right place, and he brought freedom to an oppressed people, his people, and he helped to make America a better place for all of us. Now, we haven't really talked today about some of what's going on in other parts of the world, and I promised you that I would bring you up to date on the latest from Iran. The situation there is precarious, and there is one thing I want to correct. 
when I misspoke last week. We were told, we were all told, that in the missile attacks which Iran launched against our troops in Iraq, no U.S. personnel was injured. But later reports revealed that contrary to the earlier reports, 11 U.S. soldiers were in fact injured. I'm sorry about that. I usually try to verify everything that I report to you, but this time even the President got it wrong when he announced that none of our personnel were hurt. At least I'm keeping pretty good company. Now, back to Iran. On the one hand, the Iranian people are angry with the government, and they've been demonstrating against the government for months because of the skyrocketing inflation. But after the killing of Qasem Soleimani and the downing of the Ukrainian passenger plane, they came out in force. The Iranians are fed up. They've had enough. So they came out and they demonstrated. But so did the IRGC. Even without Soleimani, they are vicious and ruthless. And they're prepared to shoot demonstrators in cold blood in order to quell the demonstrations. Before the events of last week, the IRGC has killed more than 1,500 civilians who were demonstrating against the government. There are no more recent numbers so far, but I'll bring them to you when I get them. The Iranian government is in a very dangerous mood. The loss of their IRGC leader, who was thought to be second in command after the Ayatollah, has been a severe blow to them, and they are angry and they want revenge. Now, on the one hand, Iran is financially strapped because the U.S. sanctions on its oil revenues. But on the other hand, they are eager for revenge against the United States for the death of Soleimani, and by extension, against Israel. Reports are coming in now that the Iranians are moving mobile missile launchers and ballistic missiles into eastern Syria, into eastern Syria, and that they are planning some kind of major attacks against American assets in the region and, of course, against Israel. Last Friday, the Ayatollah Khamenei appeared at Friday prayers for the first time in eight years and gave a threatening speech against President Trump, the United States, and Israel. He didn't mince words. He said that Iran had slapped the face of the United States by launching missiles at two Iraqi bases housing U.S. soldiers. That's where the 11 soldiers were injured. He said that, quote, the fact that Iran has the power to give such a slap to a world power shows the hand of God, unquote. The Iranian leadership believes that their Messiah, the 12th Imam, will come only after a period of chaos, and that if they create the chaos, they will hasten his coming. Our strategy with Iran must take into account that their ideology is not in line with anything we really understand too well. They do not think the way we do. They do not want the same things that we do. To our way of thinking, they are totally insane. They will sacrifice their entire people for their religious beliefs. So anticipating what they will do next is difficult. But the biggest mistake that we can make is to underestimate them. President Trump did exactly what was necessary by taking out Soleimani when he did. And he must remain resolute so that the face that he turns to Iran is powerful and unbending. That is the only language, the language of power, 
that is understood in much of the Middle East. It's why Obama's mission failed so badly and why Trump's will not. Well, that's it for today, my friends. The clock has run out. Thank you for spending this hour with me. I hope you will join me again next week. And if there's something you'd like to tell me, if you agree or don't agree with me, that's okay too. I'd love to hear from you. Send me an email to alana at freedmanreport.com. I look forward to hearing from you. You've been listening to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this has been the Friedman Report.